Hey, this is Pete Alonzo of the New York Mets, and you're listening to BT Talks Baseball on the 365 Sportscast Network. Take it away, Brett. Live from the launch pad in Huntington, New York, it's BT Talks Baseball, presented by 915 Construction and Design, home of Handyman Express. Now, here's Brett Topel. I am Brett Topel, and this is BT Talks Baseball, presented by 915 Construction and Design, home of Handyman Express. So great to have you with me here on this Sunday night, right here on the 365 Sportscast Network. As always, I'm here with my producer, Mike Capisi. Mike, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing great. Beautiful weather day today in New York. And I have to say, we are three weeks into this new uh, iteration of BT Talks Baseball, and I cannot get enough of my own in- of the intro to my own show. Uh, when I hear Take Me Out to the Ball Game, such a great rendition performed on cello by my good friend Elizabeth Glennon, I know that my show is on the air, and then of course to be introduced by Mets star Pete Alonzo, followed by the voice of City Field, Colin Cosell, it's hard not to be ready to do a show. So do a show I shall. Uh, that's a lot of S's there, but uh, I am ready t- for tonight's show, so excited for tonight's show. Uh, Some great guests lined up. San Francisco Giants manager Gabe Kapler will be joining me in just a few minutes. Uh, Award-winning author Marty Appel. So many great books. And, of course, Marty, uh, one of the foremost uh, historians in baseball history, specifically on Yankees history. And then, of course, as always, every week, Glenn Hausman will join me for the baseball road trip. And this week, Glenn will be telling telling us about all the great spots to hit in San Francisco. We'll keep a little bit of a San Francisco theme uh, with Gabe Kapler coming on the show. But first, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the news of the week. And the news of the week starts with the New York Yankees. And uh, I've been saying on this show for the last couple of weeks that signing DJ LeMahieu was, uh, should be job number one for Terry Cashman and job number one complete. Uh, the Yankees signed LeMahieu this week to a six-year deal worth $90 million. And honestly, I think it might be the bargain of the century. Mike Capisi, you are a Yankees fan. I'm going to invite you in now just to talk about this because you and I texted earlier this week, and uh, you think this is a steal. I think it's a complete steal. Someone like him on the open market, maybe during a normal year, a non-COVID year, I can see him getting somewhere closer to $20, 25000000 million. Even though he's 32 years old, he's been one of the best hitters in baseball the last X amount of years. You don't get that for $15 million usually. You're absolutely right. And it's really not that much more than they were paying him uh, last year. And it is true that DJ is 32 years old, but he's the type of player where he should age well. His type of game ages well. You know, he's not uh, a type of player who, uh, whose legs are going to give out and he won't be able to steal bases anymore. He's not the kind of player who's, whose power will give out. He's such an all-around great player, uh, both in the field and at, at bat, that you would think that... You know, even if he is not the same player he is at 37 and 38 on the back end of this six-year deal, he certainly will give the Yankees their money's worth for most of that contract, wouldn't you say? I 100% agree with that, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a good stepping stone for the Yankees at this time. Who would have replaced him at second base? Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer, and it's nice when a team uh, does what you think they should do, and I think Yankee fans are all very happy that DJ LeMahieu is back in the fold. Another acquisition for the Yankees this week is Corey Kluber. Corey Kluber signed a one-year deal worth about $11 million. I think there's a a bunch of incentives in that as well. Uh, Corey won the the Cy Young in the American League uh, in 2014 and 2017. Uh, He has not been the same pitcher since 2018. That was the last year uh, he was healthy for the entire season. Uh, Real quick, Mike, what are your thoughts about the Kluber signing? I like the signing. Might have been a little too much for my liking, but 
I think it's going to be a prove me deal for him. And I think at a low risk, you have a very, very high reward with someone like him. Agreed. I think it's a no, I think it's low risk. I think it's probably no risk. I mean, eleven million dollars. Yes, it's high, but it's not really high when you consider that it's still the Yankees. Exactly. And there's money to money to spend. Now it's going to be see what their next move is. Um, they, they still need more pitching. Um, you know, Mark Roseman uh, on uh, Sports Talk New York. Where I heard him speaking about uh, you know whether they might uh, resign uh, Masahiro Tanaka uh, or some other options. Obviously, there's been some talk about uh, Castillo from the Reds mm-hmm. uh, as a possible option. But uh, we'll have to wait and see what the Yankees do. But but I think signing LeMahieu and Kluber was certainly uh, will give Yankee fans a relief that at least their team has made some moves. Okay, let's turn to the Mets. And the Mets are still waiting to hear uh, or waiting to negotiate or waiting to fi- find out what's going to happen with George Springer. The George Springer rumors continue to circulate. Uh, it seems to be down to the Mets and the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, it, it came out this week, uh, whether it was confirmed or a rumor, that Springer would love to play close to his native Connecticut. Queens is closer to Connecticut than Toronto. But uh, only time will tell. The, the George Springer saga seems to be going on and on. And uh, as we enter the second half of January now, I would assume you know players like Springer, players like Trevor Bauer uh, are going to have to start signing soon. It looked like late last week that the Mets had signed Brad Hand. Twitter lit up on Friday. The Mets were finalizing a deal for Hand. Ken Rosenthal, who's a, a very well-respected uh, baseball analyst, uh, tweeted that, that it, was, it was very close. Other, other people followed Ken. And then about two hours later, Ken Rosenthal tweeted that he had made a mistake and that the Mets were not close to signing Hand. They were, or not, had not signed Hand, but they were just still negotiating. So the Mets uh, don't quite have Hand, but they're going to need him. Well, they could sure use him, but I, it didn't work as well for the Seinfeld if I, if I just said they sure could use him. So we will see if the Mets can sign Brad Hand. I think Hand would be a very, very important addition to the Mets' bullpen. Mike, I know you're a Yankee fan, but the Mets need help in that bullpen. I completely agree with that. And I think with a lot of the Mets' bullpen, you don't know what you're going to get with someone like a Jerry's Familia who's been inconsistent in the last few years. You have to see if Edwin Diaz will bounce back. I think Brad Hand would be a good setup guy, maybe even their potential closer. Yeah, uh, listen, I, I agree. I don't, I don't know what Dylan Batantis is going to be this year. Um, a, lot of, a lot of question marks. And if, that, if the Mets are going to be built as a contender, and they certainly are a contender now uh, with Lindor and, and Carrasco uh, joining the team, I think that they need to really, really shore up that bullpen. Something else that caught my attention this week uh, in the world of baseball, not necessarily uh, something uh, that was on the field, but, uh, you know, many, if not most baseball fans that I know, at least, collected baseball cards when they were young. Mike, did you collect baseball cards? I didn't, actually. He did not. So, Mike, you're not a good, you're not a good example for my story. I probably should have talked to you before the show. <laughs> I, I, I loved baseball cards growing up, especially uh, from the late 1970s, the early 1980s. When I see those cards today, I still, uh, it brings me back to, to when I was a kid. And the reason I'm bringing up anything about baseball cards is this past week, a 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle card sold at auction for a record $5.2 million. Wow. (laughs) I was thinking that there was no way, of course, to track it, but if you could find the original owner of the card that sold for $5.2 million and ask him why he did not put the card in the spokes of his bicycles, I think that would be a good thing to know because, you know, what is this, 1952? I'm not going to be good in math. Uh, Sorry, uh, Ms. Rodriguez-McLean. I cannot do the math. Um... All these years later, $5.2 million. The pack of cards probably cost a nickel, uh, if that. And uh, somebody was, was, uh, had enough foresight to take, 
take care of that card all these years. So uh, I believe the, the record was last year or two years ago, a Mike Trout rookie sold for about $3.9 That is amazing to me. Um, no less amazing is the fact that the Mantle 52 tops went for $5.2 million. Okay, enough chatter, enough baseball banter. It's time to get to my first guest, um, which, and I'm so excited to have him on the show tonight. My first guest was a, a 57th round draft pick by the Detroit Tigers in 1995, but went on to play in the majors for 12 years. After his playing days finally ended after his second retirement, we'll talk to him about that in a minute, he had a bunch of different things going on in baseball, including broadcasting and player development for the Dodgers. And finally, in 2018, he was named manager of the Philadelphia Phillies. After two years in Philadelphia, he moved west. He was named manager of the San Francisco Giants before the 2020 season. Uh, and I'm really thrilled to have Gabe Kapler with me tonight. Gabe, thank you so much for joining me right here on BT Talks Baseball. Brett, happy to be here with you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Gabe, you played 12 years in the major leagues. You had some very solid offensive seasons. You're a member of the 2004 world champion Boston Red Sox. Not too bad for a guy who was drafted in the 57th round, 1,488th overall. That's really interesting. I, I, I think about the fact that there's a, a, few, a few less rounds these days. I, I probably don't get an opportunity to, to play professional baseball if, if – uh, if, if things were different, let's put it like that. Well, luckily, you did have the opportunity to play. You played for six different teams during your career. You had a very strong 2001 season for the Rangers where you hit 17 homers. You drove in 72 runs and stole 23 bases. By far, uh, your strongest individual season. But would you say that being a part of the 2004 Red Sox championship run was your most memorable season? I think a lot about uh, 2003 and playing the Yankees and getting, getting locked off the, the Aaron Boone home run that ended our 2003 season. And as difficult, as challenging as, as that was, 2004 was equally rewarding um, and exhilarating. So, yeah, the 2014, both on and off the field, was, was my, my most enjoyable major league experience for obvious reasons. After winning the World Series, you ended up playing two more seasons with Boston, and then you actually retired as a player, went on to manage in the minor leagues for one season before deciding to make a return to the major leagues. What happened with that whole situation? Sure. Um, well, after the, the 2005 season, when I tore my Achilles tendon, uh, we were playing Toronto, I was coming around second base and tore my Achilles tendon. I came back uh, with the Red Sox in 2006, and I, I just wasn't a very good version of myself. I didn't have as much explosiveness in my lower half and was having difficulty making plays that uh, in years prior I was able to make. And I think when the 2000 season closed, uh, our then uh, assistant general manager, farm director, Mike Hazen, who is now the GM of the Arizona Diamondbacks, and Ben Sherrington, uh, Ben Sherrington is now the president of baseball operations of the Pirates, those were Red Sox executives at the time, and they asked me if, uh, if I'd be interested in managing the 2007 Greenville Drive. And at that point, I thought maybe my career as a player from its course. So decided to take on that responsibility, enjoyed it very much. Uh, halfway through that season, I, I recognized that my body was starting to recover from that Achilles tear in a way that I didn't anticipate. So I started thinking about potentially coming back and and playing for a little while longer. 
interesting that you mentioned my, my 2001 season with the Rangers. That was my best offensive season. Uh, I think I was actually at my best when I came back and I played in 2008 for the Milwaukee Brewers. Now, I wasn't in an everyday role like I was in 01 with the Rangers. I was in more of a platoon situation. But I think my at-bats had improved in quality because of my experience. Um, I'd worked enough on my swing where I was able to get balls in the air more consistently. I had a really nice year with the Brewers in, in 08, and then I was able to parlay that into a couple of more years with the Rays. My 2009 season with, with the Rays was pretty good as well. 2010 was not good, um, which ended up being my last full season at the major league level. Well, absolutely. And, you know, you, you mentioned you ended up retiring after the 2010 season. You, you went on to coach the Israeli national team in 2013. You did some broadcasting. You ended up as the director of player development for the Dodgers for several years. And then finally in 2018, you returned to the dugout as the manager of the Phillies and, of course, now as the manager of the San Francisco Giants. Has managing always been something you've had your eyes on? It's something that I always felt like I'd be better at than I, I was as a player. So I'd say those Red Sox years were, were really important. Uh, what I learned in those Red Sox years, and, and subsequently in, in the Milwaukee year and the years with the Rays, is that I, I was pretty good at being a teammate. I was pretty good at playing a supportive role. Patron Nixon was my platoon partner in Boston, and I saw... Uh, obviously, my responsibility was to hit left-handed pitching. And him, as the left-handed half of that platoon, was to hit right-handed pitching. But what I learned through my relationship with Trot is that my biggest role was to support him and to make him better. And then to come in and play defense behind Manny Ramirez and come in, come in and pinch run for Manny Ramirez or, or David Ortiz. And those supportive roles suited me much better than any, like, individual role and and through that i recognized that i could bring that to, to managing the, the job of a manager is obviously to manage the game but also to find ways to support 25 26 individuals in the clubhouse uh, an extended major league coaching staff the front office and the fans of a city to, be, to play a supportive role to, to those individuals and, and those groups of people um so what i recognized with in my playing days is that I, that I was, I had a, an ability to do that more than being a star major leader. What, what, what is, uh, I don't know if you can single out one, but is there a, a challenge as a manager that you didn't anticipate? Anything that's caught you by surprise as a manager? Um, I would say the thing that I, maybe I didn't know before getting into this was that the job is, is much bigger than just, you know, managing nine innings or or a few more during the season. Um, it, it's an off-season job. It's a, it's a public-facing job. It is a year-round job, and it doesn't take days off. So as a player, you're always like, well, if I, if I coach or I manage, you're going to have this off-season, and the last day of the season is going to come or the last day of the postseason is going to come. And then you're going to kind of go off and have a little vacation and get ready to come back in, in spring training. That's just not the job of a manager anymore. It's, uh, it's all the time. So I think that was, that was something that you know, I learned very quickly. And I'm really grateful for because I, I like to, to build foundations and I like to, to work. And so I, 
and those things don't bother me. But it is something that I think many fans don't don't fully recognize. You know, Gabe, I mentioned earlier that you coached the Israeli national team. You are Jewish, as am I. Uh, and you are someone who is extremely proud of your heritage. Um, when I was growing up, I did not have uh, hardly any Jewish role models to look to in sports. Uh, but you were an incredible role model for young Jewish boys and girls. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means to you? I actually think you articulated it well. Um, I, I think there are few Jewish role models in, in professional sports, and um, that's kind of backed up by the demographics. And I think that um, young young Jewish boys and girls have a lot of doctors and lawyers and um, other professions to, to look to as kind of the path that they can walk. But anytime we can open that up and, and show different avenues uh, for for young people to have success, I think we want to be able to do that. So um, for all of those reasons, I'm certainly proud of, of who I am, where I come from, and know that. That's an important part of the equation as well. You know, I think in, uh, uh, just continuing that for one second, I believe you're one of only, I believe, eight Jewish managers in the history of Major League Baseball. So you're certainly, in addition to being a role model, continuing to, to break down barriers. Is that something that you're, you're aware of or you think about, or is it just something that that's who you are and that's what you do? So I, I think Judaism is, is uh, worth talking about here. I think religion and the bloodline of being Jewish are two different things. And um, I'm very proud of my bloodline and who I am. Um, you know, we, we practice religion at various levels. And so when you think about uh, a Jewish manager or a Jewish baseball player, I think we try to define that pretty narrowly. Um, but I, I guess I guess what I'm saying here is like I don't know if I'm number two or if I'm number six, but it, 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 it's not nearly as important as um, kind of modeling modeling the best possible behavior whenever I can. I guess I, I I'm not sure I answered that question directly enough for you, but I, I hope that somehow in answering that question you can kind of you can you can gather my vantage point. Absolutely, it was actually very well put. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I know that's not a normal course of questioning for uh, the manager of the Giants, so I really appreciate you sharing you know, that with us. Uh, I'm so appreciative of your time. Before I let you go, I know there's still plenty of offseason to go, but what are your thoughts about your Giants heading into 2021? I'm excited about what we're building as an organization. I'm actually right outside Oracle Park right now. Um, excited about some of the players that we've acquired so far this offseason, and I'm looking forward to get back, getting back to work with, with our club and seeing how our, our very unique, diverse coaching staff can, can impact our players in 2021 and beyond. Gabe, I wish you and the Giants all success in 2021, and I can't thank you enough for joining me right here on BT Talks Baseball. Really, really glad to have had the conversation, Brett, and I wish you nothing but the best. So great to have Gabe Kapler with me tonight. and. We're going to take a 60-second break right now to hear from 915 Construction and Design. And the, on the other side, I will be joined by author Marty Appel. 915 Construction and Design and Handyman Express have been serving Long Islanders for decades and are dedicated to providing customers with the highest quality work and overall customer service. From planning your job to making the final touch-ups, you'll experience the gold standard of home repairs and renovations. 
No matter how big or small your project may be, their talented and experienced contractors and handymen are prepared to take on the job. Whether you need to have them hang a picture frame, fix a faucet, or completely renovate your bathroom or kitchen, by calling 915 Construction and Design and Handyman Express, you can trust that your home or business is in good hands. Reach out today at 915cd.com or call 516-924-2400. 915-Construction and Design, home to Handyman Express. Proud presenting sponsors of BT Talks Baseball. So fortunate to have 915 Construction and Design and Handyman Express as my presenting sponsors. I thank Jamie and John every week. And uh, listen, the weather's getting colder, but once we get to spring, you're going to need some uh, home renovations. And 915 Construction and Design, Handyman Express, they are the people to call. Okay, it's time right now for BT's Bookshelf. Each week we speak to a baseball author, and, and this week we have, uh, we've hit the gold standard. BT's Bookshelf is brought to you by SiteMD. SiteMD is proud to be the official LASIK provider of the New York Mets. Their advanced LASIK technology is helping professional athletes and patients discover the world of clear vision beyond their glasses and contacts. Interested in LASIK? Find out more at www.sitemd.com slash LASIK. That's www.sitemd.com slash LASIK. Okay, I mentioned the gold standard a second ago. Marty Appel is more than just another baseball author. The New York Times has called him one of the nation's premier authorities on Yankee history. It's generally acknowledged as one, he, is, he is generally acknowledged as one of baseball's most informed historians. Just some of his books include uh, players like Thurman Munson, Pinstripe Empire, and of course his most recent, Casey Stangle. I've been fortunate enough to interview uh, Marty for two of my books, and it is a pleasure to have him on tonight. Marty, welcome to BT Talks Baseball. Good to be with you, Brett. Thanks for the nice introduction. Oh, absolutely. It's well-deserved. And I, I certainly want to talk to you about uh, your Casey Stangle book, which the New York Times has called, quote, the ultimate biography. But before we get to that, you know, when I was doing research for this interview, uh, I stumbled upon one of your books that I actually did not know about. I believe it was your first book called Slide Kelly Slide, The Wildlife and Times of Mike King Kelly, which I believe you wrote in 1999. Um, wasn't my first book, but it's one that I hold near and dear to this day. Um, Mike King Kelly was sort of the first matinee idol of baseball. Uh, he, he played in the 1880s, 1890s. Young fans just gravitated to him. He had a, what we call today a great charisma about him. And remarkably, this is sort of plays into American culture, the whole craze of autographing begins with Kelly, uh, not just sports, but anything. Up until uh, Kelly came along, people knew it was good to own a Washington or a Lincoln, but nobody ran around collecting autographs, let alone pursuing people in the street for their autograph. That began with uh, Mike Kelly when he played in Boston. Uh, he was almost larger than life. The fans of Boston bought him a home in Hingham, Massachusetts, and he would just, he would make a grand entrance to the ballpark every day. And the title, Slide Kelly Slide, comes from what was America's first pop hit record uh, when Edison invented the phonograph. The early recordings were patriotic and opera and church music. Slide Kelly Slide was the first pop hit single. <laughs> so uh, we call the book Slide Kelly Slide, and I had such great fun writing it. 
you know, Kelly was such an interesting character. And, and you know, I downloaded this book as soon as I, I saw it, and I, I really couldn't stop reading it. It, it seems like a book, though, that, that had to have taken a tremendous amount of research. Um, and in the late 90s, I assume you did not have uh, access, to this, uh, certainly did not have the same access that you have today. Um, what was it like to research and write a book like this from a player that played so long ago? Yeah, well, he fortunately played in major markets like Chicago and Boston, so microfilm of the old newspapers was available. I learned how to navigate through ancestral websites, and sadly there's no descendants that we know of of Kelly that could really point me to uh, you know a family tree sort of thing. When he died, he was only 36, and there was even some question as to whether or not he had a child at that time. But um, you're right, there was, the research material was limited, uh, but of course it was finite. There was nothing further going to happen in his life um, that I you know, was still going to uncover at some point. So everything available I found, and it made for a, an interesting story because it's also about the early days of professional baseball in the 19th century. Absolutely. And, and of course, baseball was a, a very different sport at that time. And, and Kelly was a true character of the game, which allows me to segue to, to your latest book. Uh, I know we've skipped about 10 of your books, but I want to get to who, the, the man who might have been the greatest character the game has ever known in Casey Stangle. As I mentioned earlier, no one knows more about Yankees history than you. But what prompted you to write a book about Casey more than 40 years after his death? Well, uh, you know, there are not a lot of real old names from baseball that haven't been done. Um, my editor at Doubleday was watching MLB Network, and they did a countdown on what they considered to be the greatest characters in baseball history. And they didn't have to be comical. I mean, great characters could be Babe Ruth or Jackie Robinson or Yogi Berra. But they named Casey Stengel as the greatest character that baseball had ever had. So my editor called me and he said, you know, there hasn't been a Casey Stengel book since Bob Creamer back in the 80s. I think his life is worthy of a fresh look. Would you be interested? Uh, so I was, and good fortune was with me, Brett, because the fam I knew the family and they made available to me an unpublished memoir by Casey's wife that she wrote in the 60s, which had never been seen outside of the family before. So that was something that Bob Creamer didn't have available to him in the 80s. And also, Bob Creamer didn't have the Internet available, and particularly a website called newspapers.com. So this great website is the digitized copies of all the daily newspapers around the whole country. So like Casey broke in in Kankakee, Illinois in 1910. And sure enough, there's the Kankakee newspaper from 1910 wow. on this site. So all of a sudden it was a treasure chest. I could go to every little minor league town and find all these long lost Casey Stengel stories. And as funny and as memorable as he was with the Yankees and the Mets in the 50s and the 60s, he was just as crazy when he was with the Dodgers and the Giants and all his minor league teams. So I would laugh out loud as I was writing some of those stories. It was such fun. 
And we called the book Casey Stengel, Baseball's Greatest Character. And I love Bob Creamer, who was a friend, and he wrote a great book. But I was happy that I had new material to work with and bring forward. It's really uh, so rewarding, I'm sure, to, to have that new material, considering your new material was really very old material. Exactly, but long buried. Long buried indeed. And, you know, I think a lot of people, when they hear the name Casey Stangle, depending on how old you are, um, think of Casey, you know, as the almost cartoon character manager of the original Mets in the early 1960s. Uh, and you and I have spoken in the past about um, there's many different iterations of Casey Stangle. He certainly was always a character, but uh, from his playing days to his days as Yankee manager to his days with, as Mets manager were, were really uh, quite different. He was quite different people. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, <laughs> talk a little bit about that and how Casey really had a bunch of different characters within his character? Well, I'm reminded of Warren Spahn, the great left-hand pitcher. Casey managed Warren Spahn with the Boston Braves um, when the Braves were terrible and long before Casey got his reputation as a great manager. And then, lo and behold, Casey's managing the hapless Mets in the 60s, and Warren Spahn, at the end of his career, goes to the Mets. And Warren Spahn said... <laughs> He said, uh, I knew Casey before and after he was a genius. <laughs> so, he was a genius in his Yankee years. To people's amazement, the Yankees picked him in 1949 to be their manager. He was a had a reputation as kind of a clown without ever, ever having achieved success as a manager. And he goes on to win eight pennants in 10 years with the Yankees, uh, helped by what he would call my players, Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, Yogi Berra, Joe DiMaggio. He had all these amazing players, and he brought great success with them. So he is the only guy that wore the home uniforms of the Dodgers, the Giants, the Yankees, and the Mets in baseball history. But it was with the Yankees, of course, that he got into the Hall of Fame as being this amazing, great manager. And, of course, by the time he got to the Mets, he, he did not have any amazing players. And it was long before the amazing Mets were called the amazing Mets. But, but you and I have also spoken about the fact that there was a little bit of a, a genius in Casey as, with the 62 Mets as well, because he... He was the one who took all the attention from the players. And I know a lot of people look at those, those 1962 Mets as lovable losers. And, uh, and I've spoken to several of those players who said it was, there was nothing fun about those, those teams for the players because, you know, they were professionals and they took it very seriously. But Casey was there to absorb everything. Is that right? That was why he was hired. George Weiss, who was the general manager with him at the Yankees and then the president of the Mets when they were born, was not known for a sense of humor, <laughs> but he had a genius stroke there in hiring Casey Stengel, who would entertain the writers with great stories and deflect attention away from how awful the Mets were. And for those too young to remember, the 62 Mets won 40 games and lost 120. And every day was a fresh disaster. But every day, Casey was entertaining, and he would tell stories about Rogers Hornsby and Mel Ott, and uh, he would just—the writers gravitated to the Mets and to Casey Stengel because they weren't the 
corporate uh, layers that you got covering the Yankees, where it was so business was so efficient and so predicated on win, 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 win. And the Mets, you never knew what you were going to get. You know, one of the things that makes your books so fantastic is is how great a storyteller you are. And you told you tell so many great stories about Casey Stangle in this book. Was there one or two that really um, took you by surprise or that uh, you enjoyed even more than you thought you would? Well, he when he was a player, he was kind of a scrapper. He would get into fights. And there's one picture in the book of New York City policemen leading him off the field at the polo grounds uh, after a fight had broken out. Serious enough that New York City cops went on the field to break up the fight. So as they're leading Casey off, it's the it's a really good look at how barrel-chested and strong he was, because we don't think of him like that now. We think of him as a little hunched-over old man. Uh, but as a player, he was he would have made a couple of all-star teams. He wasn't going to be a Hall of Fame player. But that one picture I love because it just shows him as a really strapping young outfielder and uh, – you know, he looks grizzled, and he always looked old, but he looks like ready for action. I love that photo and the story that went with it. So many great stories, as I said, as I mentioned in this book. And, and for those baseball fans who have not read this book yet, it's, it's a must-read, absolutely. And, uh, Marty, I want to switch gears a little bit now because, uh, uh, you know, in addition to, you know, I guess before you had all these books, you were uh, the youngest PR director, I believe, in Yankees history. Is that, is that correct? Uh, in major league history, actually, and of all teams, you know, the high-profile Yankees, what an honor that was. Mr. Steinbrenner made me his PR director in 1973, and I was only 24 years old. Of course, you know, you and I have spoken, um, well, I, I was fortunate enough to interview you for my book, uh, When Shea Was Home, which was about the 1975 season, uh, the second season that the Yankees spent at Shea Stadium while Yankee Stadium was being renovated, and, uh, you know, you had so many great stories uh, about that season. Not that that season was great by any means, although the Yankees did have uh, Catfish Hunter. They saw Catfish Hunter that year, and it was, they certainly were on the precipice of being a great team. But one of my favorite stories, and you've told it to me uh, several times, that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you uh, respectfully to tell it again, is the day that the Yankees almost blew up Shea Stadium. <laughs> yeah, well, we were guests of the Mets for two years. Um, but our most memorable impact at Shea Stadium was one day as a promotion, we had a salute to the Army Day. It was their 200th anniversary of the U.S. Army. And as part of the celebration and ceremonies, uh, a cannon out in right center field was going to fire off a 21-gun salute. Well, it wasn't pointed right at the fence, but the reverberation and the percussion from the noise of the explosion actually set the fence on fire and knocked it down. So the game had to be held up for a half hour or so while the fence was replaced. But <laughs> when Shea Stadium closed in 2008, there were all these retrospectives of you know, the Mets pennants and the Beatles playing there twice uh, and Billy Joel playing there with Paul McCartney. And we get relegated to blowing up the ballpark <laughs> <laughs> with the cannon in the outfield. 
but well, it, <laughs> I love that story because yeah. I was I, I wasn't responsible for the cannon. No, no, and that, that's that's probably why you love the story. <laughs> that's probably why you love the story so much. And and I will <laughs> I will say that one of the great things about. Um, you know, uh, the internet is that you can, anybody can go on YouTube now and, uh, and, and, and look at that. And there is footage um, from, I believe it was, it was one of the networks, I can't remember which one, and you can clearly see the Yankees blowing down the center field fence at Shea Stadium. Yeah, it's NBC. John Chancellor, I think, was the anchor. And um, our promotion director, I don't mind naming him, Barry Landers, he came up with the idea. And it's especially funny to me because He's like standing next to the cannon at attention, and even when the fence blows up in flames, he just continues to stand there at attention like a good citizen. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure there was a little bit of shock going through his system at that point. Yeah. Well, well, Marty, listen, it is always a pleasure to speak to you. Um, I, I appreciate your time. Uh, your books are fantastic, and your memories are, are a treasure trove. So thank you so much for joining me tonight on BT Talks Baseball. My pleasure, Brett. Thanks for having me. Always such a pleasure to speak to, to Marty Appel. He, Marty Appel is one of those guys that if I call him or email him, he never says no. He's always there if I need to interview him for something or, or to come on BT Talks Baseball. And um, I had interviewed him for a couple of books, but it was so great to have him on tonight. And, and uh, if you have a chance, if you're a Yankee fan, there are so many options to read one of Marty Appel's books. Uh, Pinstripe Empire is fantastic. Uh, he wrote a fantastic Thurman Munson biography. Uh, but his Casey Stangle book is absolutely tremendous. I recommend it very highly. Okay. We are cruising through this show, no pun intended. We are now going to baseball's road trip. We are not going to talk about cruises um, at all. The baseball road trip is brought to you by Wanderology, your one-stop luxury travel agency that handles everything for you so you can relax knowing you've left your vacation planning to the experts. Wanderology's mission is very simple, to help you plan a trip that you'll never forget and to make it easier than ever. Every journey starts with a conversation, so reach out to Rebecca at Wanderology today at wanderology.com or at 516-636-TRIP. Be sure to mention BT Talks Baseball for a special booking discount. Wanderology, life is short, the world is wide. Okay, if it is time for the baseball road trip, you know who's going to be joining me right now. He is the host of No Vacancy Podcast. He does so many great things in the travel industry. He is a travel guru, and he, I am proud to have him as part of BT Talks Baseball every week. Glenn Hausman. Glenn, how are you? Great, so great to see you, man. How are you today? I am doing great. We are cruising through this show, and it's the second time I use the word cruising, although I don't think too many people are going to be going on cruises anytime soon, and we're not going to talk about cruises. man. I mean, one day we'll get back there out of some cruises. You know, you can go. Well, Rebecca would tell you this, but you can go on river cruises and some places in Europe, so not so bad. Well, there you go, and and, and who, who knows? Soon enough, there may be the cruises for the vaccinated, so uh, we will have to stay tuned for that. Um, you know, you and I spoke earlier in the week, and uh, because I was speaking to San Francisco Giants manager Gabe Kapler tonight, uh, just a tremendous interview with Gabe. I thought it would be great um, if you hit you know hit us with some great spots in San Francisco. Uh, I have a couple to contribute as well, but. Um, why don't you kick it off? Well, what's going on in San Fran? Oh, San Francisco. I got to tell you, Brad, San Francisco is one of my favorite cities in the entire country. And what really aggravates me, and I know I sound pretty pissed off right now, is there aren't enough 
conferences and events for me to go to in San Francisco. Sure, I love Vegas. Sure, I love Orlando. But took me to San Francisco because this is one of the great American cities. And I absolutely love it, Brett. I went on there. I remember the first time I ever went to San Francisco. My parents took me to this restaurant in 1984 called the Steak and Rose. And it's all about garlic. And everything is garlic, garlic, garlic. I don't know about you, Brett, but uh, I love garlic. And this is like my, my heaven when I go out there to San Francisco. Listen, I think one of the advantages, if we're going to look for advantages of having to wear a mask, is that you can go to the stinking rose and not worry about it. <laughs> yes. Also, uh, very happy to say that they are uh, vampire-free over there because uh, they're very focused on making sure that they've got terrific garlic steaks over there, that they uh, count Vladimir's garlic steaks. They're to die for, they say, over there. And what I love about these men, they're dry-aged four to six weeks because, you know, that's how you make a good steak. And then infused with the garlic and the butter and rosemary, it is unbelievable steaks. Oh, man, 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 I'm getting hungry. I just had a major Indian meal just now, but I'm now all of a sudden I want some steak. Yeah, I'm gonna, I, I don't have dinner until after the show, so I don't think I'm going to be out to get out to San Francisco in time for dinner tonight, but it all sounds great. What you got a spot for breakfast, too, don't you? Yeah, of course I do, my friend. All right, so um, one of the things that we love here in the Houseman household is Korean fried chicken. And listen, Korean fried chicken seems to be taken off around the country. One of the other things I love? Chicken and waffles. Well, it's Surasan at Surasan San Francisco. You can go to find them at SurasanSF.com, right in the Fisherman's Wharf District. Asian-inspired comfort breakfast and brunch foods featuring that amazing Korean fried chicken. They've also got their their spins on bibimbap bowls, which I absolutely love. These are uh, bowls where the rice is uh, in the hot bowl and it becomes kind of crispy on the bottom. They put all sorts of things in it, such as spicy pork, kimchi, vegetables. Fried egg is a necessity on there. Absolutely delicious. One of the things I love most of all are Asian breakfast, and you can't go wrong with a Korean breakfast, particularly with Korean fried chicken. Listen, fried chicken for, for breakfast, you, you got me. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. And also, uh, you know, one of the things I, I didn't make it, I didn't think about this formally, but as I was eating dinner tonight, I'm like, oh my God. San Francisco, it's got the best Chinatown. You know, Brett, here in New York, we grew up, uh, you know, at Mott Street and going to some great Chinese restaurants, but San Francisco, now that is authentic Chinese food, and you can't go wrong by making sure you go to Chinatown in San Francisco. Listen, I cannot wait to go back to San Francisco, and I, I, I want to just jump in here with a, one of my favorite spots in San Francisco, and it's it's a small little premier candy boutique, and it's called The Candy Store. It is owned by a dear friend of mine, and uh, it is absolutely tremendous. They have everything from the vintage candy, the original Swedish fish, and the, and the licorice uh, circles to, to, to marzipan. And they also have this unbelievably, everything is beautifully packaged. The Candy Store of San Francisco is unbelievable. Now, unfortunately, because of COVID, the store itself Glen is not open right now. It's it's located in the Russian yep. Hill. It's, it's located in the Russian Hill district of uh, San Francisco. However, they have a tremendous website, tremendously good website, not tremendously large, but it's tremendously good. The Candy Store SF.com. And I, I recommend, I mean, 
the, 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 the pink flamingo gummy bears are outrageous. And I just ordered myself, Glenn, their bridge mix. Bridge mix. I have a, I like that. Oh, God, I have a weakness. I do not play bridge. And I don't travel over many bridges, but but the bridge mix from the candy store, fantastic. Um, that's the candy the candy store sf.com. Uh, Diane will take good care of you, and uh, I, I highly recommend it. So next time you're in San Francisco, Glenn, get yourself a little bit of candy. I definitely will. I love getting those non-Pharrells and uh, some, you know, truffles and all that kind of stuff. But no family vacation when I go away would be incomplete. Would be complete without going and buying fudge at an authentic candy store, having one bite of it, and going, "Why do I always buy all so much of this fudge? We don't really like it all that much." And do that. <laughs> well, I will say <laughs> the thing that's really special about the candy store sf.com is that they have all this great candy, and somehow. Each mm-hmm. and every item they have, no calories. Zero. Oh, Unbelievable. Wow. Unbelievable. Wow. I, don't, I don't know how she does it. I don't know how Diane does it, but everything on that website, zero calories. All right. Okay, That is a city where you actually have to go uphill both ways to get anywhere. Absolutely. What else you got for us in, that, in San Fran? All right, so, of course, San Francisco, you know, you got to go do some uh, tourism type of activities. Now, but of course, I can't not bring up Alcatraz because Alcatraz is one of those cool things. Again, I went there when I was a kid. I've been there a couple of times since, and it always amazes me um, about that. I keep trying to find, like, uh, Nick Cage over there, and I can't seem to find him or uh, Sean Connery or anything like that. But I keep looking, and I'll tell you the one time – that I was there, scared the hell out of me. They put you in these cells and they'll close the door and make it tell you what it's like in solitary confinement. And it is dark, it is quiet, it is freaky. And you could really start to get the feeling of what it was like to be trapped in this place so close to San Francisco, but impossibly far away at the same time. Absolutely. I've been to Alcatraz several times. And it's, it's actually one of my favorite places to go because it's so, it's so much like it was then. You know, they haven't changed that much. Obviously, there's there's, mm-hmm. uh, they, there's all the furniture and the beds and stuff are not there, but they have cells that are, like like you said, are made up as if the prisoners... But the, but the place itself has just this terrifying air about it. Right? Uh, it's so scary. But, you know, there's also great island work, walks, and uh, great birds and stuff like that because it's kind of habitat for stuff. So even if you, uh, you get freaked out by certain stuff, there is a lot of natural beauty there, which is really bizarre to think about the juxtaposition between a prison and island walks and bird doing. But it's really kind of a cool thing. Um, one thing I would recommend never to do in San Francisco is uh, Lombard Street. It's supposedly the world's crookedest street. I don't care. Who cares? It's a street. It's crooked. If you go back and forth on it, it's really, uh, it's really annoying. Plus, it's really on top of one of those really big hills, and those hills there are no joke. It is exhausting going up and down those things. Yeah, I think that uh, the the good, only good thing about the hills in San Francisco, Glenn, is that all this food we're talking about—the garlic steak, the the Korean uh, fried chicken breakfast, the candy that has no calories but still mm-hmm. might have a little bit of sugar in it. Um, that's the only advantage of having those hills. You could do a little walking and walk some of it off. Right. <laughs> you got that right. And, well, you know, the last thing I'll talk about is walking your way over to the Ashbury uh, district. Uh, you know, uh, Brent, I was a big, big, big Grateful Dead fan back in the day. I, rem- and, I um, remember that. I remember that well. You could, go to, you could go to the house in which the band of Grateful Dead lived from 1965 to 1968. 
um, which is pretty cool. That's instead of 10 Ashbury Street in San Francisco. And also, you can go around the area. You can get some tours and go check out the homes for Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and more. Interestingly enough, Brett, I also saw Jimi Hendrix's home in London. So I've got multiple Jimi Hendrix home sightings on multiple continents. Glenn, we have a few more minutes, so I'm going to keep you on. I know you know you mentioned Jimi Hendrix. You mentioned Grateful Dead. Uh, music, the music scene in San Francisco is is such a, a rich and tradition-filled one. I know there's so many great groups from that area, a group that I love, um, the Counting Crows come from that area, uh, the Bay Area. I don't know if it's specifically San Francisco. I think it is. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the culture in San Francisco? And uh, it's, it's just such a great place. You know, I, I always like to say, if San Francisco was closer, I would go there a lot more. Yeah, San Francisco is absolutely a great place. So it's one of those places that I think encourages you to be the authentic you, whoever you want to be. There's a place for you in San Francisco. And it also seems on the surface a lot less judgy than some other cities I've been to. You don't feel like you have to conform to it. After all, it is kind of a nonconformist place. It's the leading place for nonconformist places. But I also what I like about it is um, different cultures and races seem to get along really, really well together. The uh, incredible Chinese influence that's in the city, I think that's really permeated the fabric of the of the city. And just the general tone of the people there is absolutely incredible. San Francisco, though, you know, you get some crazy weather once in a while. The weather's just good enough that it's really a, a nice outdoor culture. People just go and they hit the bars on the streets all the time. And it's just so pleasant and such a nice place to be to, uh, to go to. And I'll tell you, you can't get enough when you go there. There's always new places to discover uh, around the corner. Such as, hey, go to that full house house, for example. That's another great place to go check out. And you'll be very happy that you went and did that. Will the uh, Olsen twins be in the full house house? (laughs) Well, they they only guarantee one twin at a time. Or maybe uh, maybe get a twin sister or something like that. Maybe get Elizabeth Olsen to go in there right now because she's doing so well on Disney Plus with her... uh, Charlotte Show, Division. <laughs> there's also great parks in San Francisco, right? So, so many great open spaces in San Francisco. That's what I remember as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And you know, one thing I would recommend everybody do: get in the car in San Francisco, drive up to Napa for the uh, for the day. It's only about ninety minutes north, and you could really go on some amazing wine tours. One time, um, uh, Brett, I had this amazing experience where we did this wine tour happy hour on a train, and they put us on a train, and we we just rode along the tracks, and they gave us appetizers, and we did wine tastings, and had charcuterie did, uh, treats and stuff like that. It was, Absolutely memorable, incredible experience. You know, one of the last times I was in San Francisco, I was fortunate enough um, to go to see a Giants game. It was actually a Giants-Dodgers game. Uh, nothing better than that mm-hmm. in San Francisco. And it was a day game. It was like a, yeah. I don't know if it was a 1 o'clock game or a 12.30 game. And, and uh, you know, you, you mentioned the Stinkin' Rose earlier. And, and I don't know that this was a, a subsidiary of the Stinkin' Rose in the stadium. But the, everybody was telling me that when I was in the stadium, and I think at the time it was... Uh, Pack Bell Park. It's it's called something else now. Um, but they said you have to have the garlic fries. The garlic French fries are what you know. The, if you go to Los Angeles, you need to have a Dodger dog. Yeah. If you go to, to City Field, you want to have a, a sandwich from Mama Lombardi's. If you go to San Francisco, they said you need to have the garlic fries. And I was like, well, uh, it's only you know twelve noon. You know how how am I going to do with these garlic fries? But but Glenn, I got to tell you, I had the garlic fries um, and uh, they were spectacular. They are. Uh, those are amazing. And, you know, while you're out, it goes to uh, gives you some fun stuff, you know, while you're out there. That Fisherman's Wharf area is really amazing. It's quintessentially San Francisco. 
Um, I'm looking at the weather right now. 70 degrees right this second over there. Be sure to treat yourself some Dungeness crab. That's kind of the local crab that they have there. We all think it's a big deal to have it on the East Coast. There on the West Coast, it's whatever, whatever. You can have it every day of the year. It's absolutely fantastic. And, um, and just enjoy yourself when you're there. Walk around. Get lost. Don't be nervous. Take a ride up, on, uh, up and down those cable cars. They're really freaking cool. And it will be... A real San Francisco treat. Nicely said. Nicely said. And you, and you, you I don't even think you had rice aroni for dinner. Um, listen, I'm just, I'm just hoping that we can get to San Francisco sometime soon. Um, you know, we, you mentioned, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, we, I think you mentioned that you think leisure travel will start to pick up by uh, maybe late spring or early summer. Do you, are you thinking that travel from the East Coast to the West Coast will be uh, something that picks up initially, or is that going to be a little bit further down the line? Well, I think it will be initially for the super brave. I think when we're starting to get back to leisure travel, um, I think we're going to see a continued uh, a continued phenomenon, everybody getting in their cars. It's much easier. People are feeling more comfortable with it, kind of traveling with, uh, with um, you know, ease when you're in your car like that. You know, there's not as many blockades. There's not as many uh, hurdles that you have to overcome to feel safe, to feel comfortable. Listen, I write about hotels every single day in my life. I talk to hotel executives every single day, and they all tell me how safe it is. So I highly recommend you guys getting in the car, spending some leisure time, go catch a ball game as soon as the season starts. And, uh, Brett, I know a couple of people that have already packed up the family. They're down in South Florida, and they're just waiting for pitchers and catchers and games and stuff like that so they can start seeing games in Florida and Arizona. Let me tell you, just just hearing that uh, excites me. Hey, Glenn, I've had you on for three weeks. I have not asked you how people can hear the No Vacancy podcast. You do such a great job with your co-host. Can you just take a minute and talk about that? Sure. Uh, feel free to check it out at NoVacancyNews.com. We talk to all of the major executives in hospitality and travel every single day. So you want to check us out. We're live on the internet at noon on No Vacancy, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on YouTube, and of course, NoVacancyNews.com. Get our audio version of our podcast at No Vacancy with Glenn Hausman, wherever you choose to get your podcast from. If you're a real geek for our business, be sure you text the word hotel to 66866. Get added to the newsletter. Get our Sunday night newsletter. Learn all of that you need to know about what's going on in the hospitality and travel business. Thanks, Brent. Of course. And of course, you can hear Glenn each and every Sunday night on BT Talks Baseball. Glenn, my friend, thank you so much. Thanks, buddy. All right, can't wait to see where we go next week on our road trip. The, 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 the folks will have to wait. We're going to keep it a mystery. Thank you so much. All right, Glenn Hausman, he joins us every week here on the baseball road trip. Uh, Glenn does such a great job, not only right here on BT Talks Baseball, uh, but on his No Vacancy podcast. And uh, listen, he's confident that uh, leisure travel is going to pick up. Um, uh, I spoke to uh, Rebecca at Wanderology. She is confident uh, and fingers crossed that leisure p- travel is going to start to pick up um, as we move into the spring and certainly into the early summer. So uh, as Glenn said, hopefully we will be sitting at baseball games at some point this summer. All right. Wow. That went fast. Mike, how you doing? I'm great. <laughs> Mike is ready to go home in just a couple of minutes. Um, for those of you who are watching the football game on mute, I appreciate it. In just a couple of minutes, you'll be able to put that sound back on. But, uh, you know, you could also stay tuned. Coming up right after me here on 365 Sportscast is Carpin's Corner. Uh, Howie Carpin will have Rick Carpinello tonight. Uh, 
Rick Carpinello is one of the foremost authorities when it comes to hockey. I used to work with Rick many years ago uh, at the Journal News up in Westchester. Uh, and then following Howie and Rick will be Mets Clubhouse Confidential with Rich Catino uh, covering all things Mets. Um, I am fortunate enough that next week I will be joined by Frank Catalanato, former major leaguer, and author John Pessa. And I'm really excited about that. Wow, we, did, we packed a lot into a show. And... Uh, I think it's, a, it's almost time to go. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday night. Enjoy your football. Um, and listen, I think more, sp- more baseball free agency and trades are going to be happening over the next week. And I can't wait to talk about it next week right here on BT Talks Baseball. Until then, as the late Tug McGraw always said, you got to believe. New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is a man who began his career at the age of two years old when he appeared as a child model for a department store ad. Soon after that, he starred in a commercial for Pet Milk opposite legendary vaudeville actor Ed Wynn. His early movies included This Is My Love, Men of the Fighting Ladies.